Amen. It is good to be back with you this morning. It was a wonderful uh, time with my family last weekend, but I am so thankful for my church family, and there's no sweeter place on this earth for me to be than here at Adamsville Baptist Church. There's no place that I would rather be, and it is because of the rich fellowship and family that we have here. As we come this morning, we are going to be studying how to be good and rich, how to be rich and good. As we come to our study, perhaps this is a most pressing topic for us in our country and in our culture because after all it deals with money and its management. As a nation there is a raging debate right now in Washington DC of how we are to move forward past this point that we have come to a financial crisis. This is shocking. It is absolutely shocking considering that we are the most affluent country in the most affluent culture in the most affluent society that the world has ever known. How in the world could we possibly be dead broke? It's a great question, isn't it? Indeed, we understand the resources we have have been held and used with a great lack of wisdom by our politicians. They have had a great lack of wisdom in how to use and manage the resources that they have been given. And so today, our faces, our nation faces a, a devaluing of our debt rating because we are unable to pay our debts. That's probably not true. Nothing any, any other politician says is true. So why should that be? But understand, we have $14.55 trillion of debt as of this morning. And we stand and we look and un- try to comprehend exactly what's going on. Why are we where we are? Well, the simple reason is because the politicians spend what we don't have on things we don't need to continue their service that we would probably be better without. Amen and amen. It is utter insanity for a government that will take in $4.5 trillion between the federal, state, and local governments this year alone for us to be in such a physical crisis, such a financial crisis. And so yet, though the federal government will take in $2.2 trillion this year, they will spend roughly at least $1.4 trillion over and above that number The reality for our government today is that we don't have a revenue problem. We have a spending problem. We have forgotten how to manage the resources. As one great politician once said, I would compare the politicians to drunken sailors, but that would be an insult to the drunken sailors. Indeed, money is holding our politicians captive to, so that they can further their programs and policies of personal political interest. They are trusting in hor- horses and chariots and not in the living God. And the reality is our lives as citizens directly reflects exactly what is going on in the nation's government. While we see and understand the serious nature of the danger to our country and culture that will be done if we continue down this primrose path of destruction gathering up many debts, I must give you fair warning that our government is nothing more than a reflection of its citizenry. For as the individual citizens of the United States of America, our total debt today is $13.5 trillion. Do you realize that? 
National debt is $14.5 trillion. Personal debt within America is $13.5 trillion. $43,874 is what every man, woman, and child is responsible for in personal debt within America. I don't know about you, but William can't work that hard. $46,775 is the amount that we are responsible for for national debt. We understand when we combine those two together, $90,000 per individual is the debt load that each and every one of us are responsible for between personal and national debt. The reality is that in the midst of the richest country and the richest culture the world has ever known, both our citizens and our government institutions have forgotten what the terms manager and steward means. Indeed, we are to manage money and we are to be servant stewards of God's resources. We are indeed among the wealthiest Christians that have ever lived within this world. The least of us this morning has more than those who had the most within the congregation that Paul is writing to at Ephesus in First Timothy. So God's words today are for each and every one of us, all of us, no matter who you are or how little you think you have, understand. And you have more than those who were the most prominent of Christians in the church at Ephesus in Timothy's day. And so we need to understand the word of God this morning is for us. Those of you who are rich in the resources of this world need to be guarded because you have two responsibilities. Number one, there is a danger of money. And number two, there is a duty of how you are to use money. Pastor, how are we to use your, how are we to use money? Well, we are to use money how? As the word of God tells us to. And we turn to the Word of God to see the warning and wisdom that God inspires to be recorded through Paul as he addresses the issue of how to be rich and good in God's eternal kingdom as we live within this earthly kingdom. We see here wisdom and warning concerning how to be good and rich as we live for God's eternal kingdom in the midst of this earthly kingdom. Let us take our Bibles and turn there to 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 17 through 19, and let us see what Paul has to say concerning our wealth and riches, and let us see how we are to live a life that demonstrates that we are both good and rich before the living God. Let's stand now in honor of this, the reading of God's holy and inerrant word. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 17 through 19, it reads as follows. Instruct those who are rich in this present world not to be conceited or to fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly supplies us with all good things to enjoy. Instruct them to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, storing up for themselves the treasure of a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is life indeed. 
Instruct those who are rich in this present world not to be conceited or to fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. Father, we come to you today thanking you for the gifts that you have given. Father, we thank you for the simple gift, the simple gift of life. We thank you for the gift that you have given in the form of salvation through Jesus Christ, by grace alone, through faith alone. Lord, we come to you this morning thanking you that you give us resources, resources to manage, resources to steward for the furtherment of your kingdom. Lord, may you lead us to be, Father, good managers and Father, servant stewards with all that you have given to us. Let us see the stuff of this world not as things that we own and we possess, but things that we are holding in our hands to use for your good and for your glory. Lord, lead us now as we study these scriptures. In Jesus' name, amen. We see this pa- in this passage that our riches are really the resources God has gifted to us in order to facilitate the flow of the gospel to the ends of the earth. That's really what he's saying here. Our riches are the resources God has gifted to us in order to facilitate the flow of the gospel to the ends of the earth. Indeed, that is the goal. That is what we're going after. That's the heart, the mission of the church to glorify God and to display the good work so that all might know the grace that God has given to each and every one of us. And we are to see ourselves as managers, as stewards, and not as owners and keepers. Our goal this morning is spiritual maturity in all areas of life. Well, I don't want to hear about any any message this morning about money, Pastor. I don't want to hear you talk about money. I'm so tired of hearing about it on the news. Well, listen, if I did not teach about money, I would be neglecting exactly what God says and how he has said it. In other words, when God speaks about stewardship, we need to not only hear it, we need to heed it and put it into practice in our lives. We indeed are within the 99th percentile of all of the riches that has ever been owned within the world. And yet we live as if we have no care or concern for God's kingdom. We live in a day that oozes materialism. The world is not helping you approach money and handle your money in a way that is God honoring. And even if you don't imbibe from the current philosophy of materialism, nevertheless, we all are affected by it. It is important that we understand and tie our approach to money uh, to our approach to the lordship of our lives. For indeed, the, ma- the, the issue of managing the resources God has given, the issue of stewardship of the resources God has given to us is actually tied directly to the issue of His Lordship in our life. Throughout the Scriptures, stewardship is a Lordship issue. Not just what we give to the church, but everything that we have and handle upon this world. It's an issue, it's an issue of whether we really love the Lord, whether we really worship the Lord, whether we really live to glorify and enjoy the Lord, whether we truly accept the Lord as our personal Lord. We say that Jesus is our Lord, but listen, the way that we utilize money is an important index, an indicator to whether he really is our Lord. Indeed, I would be like a lot of other lily-livered pastors 
if I didn't address the issue of stewardship. And so we come to it in the text and we have to deal with it in our lives. And so this morning, I would not be a faithful pastor. I would not be a pastor worth his salt if I didn't teach on this passage as we come to it in the text of our scripture and address the negative and positive commands that God has given to to manage and to steward the resources he has given to us within this world. And so we must see today that our riches are really the resources God has given to facilitate the flow of the gospel to the ends of the earth. And as we begin, we want to begin with a negative aspect of money for the Christian. And if we look there in verse 17, we see the negative aspect. It is the dangers of money for the Christian. Paul expresses two dangers here for those who are rich within this present world. In other words, for those who hold great money, he says self-pride and self-security are the two dangers that face those who have great resources. He wants to make sure that the church does not overlook God as a giver of all glorious and good things, including the resources by which we live. He wants to make sure we have a direct connection that God has given everything that we have. And he wants to make sure that we don't swell up with pride or be self-secure in our approach to life. Indeed, Paul begins with the word instruct. This means command or charge within that context. This is a military word that you are to follow orders. Then listen, Timothy, you are to command the people. You are to instruct the people. You are to charge the people that they are to deal rightly with God's resources. Paul isn't dispensing some helpful hints. Hey, you can take them or leave them. He says, listen, this is how your attitude and approach to money is to be lived out within this earthly world. And listen, you need to be on guard against Selfish pride, arrogance, perhaps is what your Bible says, or conceit. You need to be guarded against conceit. Conceit is used only here in the New Testament, and it means to be high-minded, lofty-minded, to think of yourself as better than others. You know what it means, don't you? Somebody that looks down their nose at those who have less. Somebody that looks around and says, well, you know, if they only worked as hard as I did, if they only used their mind like I did, if they had only done what I did. And what in that moment is guarding is is governing our hearts? Pride, because it makes it all about me and it makes it all about who I am and what I have done. In other words, I am the reason I'm rich. I worked hard. I use my smarts. I deserve to be rich. You ever heard that? Well, I deserve that. Well, a person with that kind of arrogant attitude will be a haughty hog and not a generous giver. And Paul warns against it. Don't be a haughty hog. Be a generous giver. See, a person who thinks that they're responsible for everything in their life has an arrogant attitude. And he's going to hang on to everything he thinks he has done and earned. Even those who have money that have acquired it through inheritance, through no effort of their own, are often proud and puffed up about their power and prestige that comes from their wealth. And yet the question for us today is, well, who gave you the life? Who gave you the health? Who gave you the mental capacity to earn the riches that you have today? Who did it? Did you give yourself life? 
Did you give yourself breath? Did you give yourself the health and mental capacity that you needed to make perhaps your millions? Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 7, No, you didn't. What do you have that you did not receive? But if you did receive it, why do you boast as if you had not received it? God has given everything. He has given us life. He has given us health. He has given us the capacity, mental capacity, to earn the money that we have. And so He is responsible for everything. Listen, riches and resources doesn't bring to one class or character or charity, does it? It doesn't. Riches, money, doesn't bring class or character or charity. In fact, it tempts us to be proud and puffed up to be prideful. We must understand that if we have modest money or much money, we must understand that we are to guard ourselves against having pride in the resources that have been given to us. Secondly, not only do we need to guard ourselves against pride, there is there a warning against pride, but also against self-security in this earthly world. See, remember his instruction, Paul's instruction in verse 6 to, through 10 is to not be greedy for gain of this world, but rather to be what? Adding God, contentment to godliness, which is of great gain says, listen, don't be content with just the things here in this world. Be content with godliness, the things that profit, profit you for all of eternity. Indeed, you brought nothing into this world. You can take nothing out of this world. Listen, and you may go to sleep tonight and you may be comfortable, but tomorrow morning you may never wake up. And everything you have is gone. And it's given over to somebody else. Perhaps tonight you go to sleep on your comfortable mattress in your nice house and cushy house with air conditioner running and the pillow top mattress and you're just loving life and everything's good and all the world is at your at your fingertips and you're just loving the cars in your garage and the all the money that you have stockpiled there in your savings account and then tomorrow morning you wake up and the house is burned down the all the stuff is burned up thieves have broken in and stole all of your savings and who will you be happy with tomorrow what will you be happy with tomorrow will you be satisfied with the stuff of this world that is uncertain because it pertains to this world and so it's passing away or will you be satisfied with the lord if the lord tarries you and i will also pass we will not live forever for indeed every man will die and all the money in the in the world is worthless when we stand before god to give account of our lives proverbs chapter 11 verse 4 says that riches do not profit in the day of wrath but righteousness delivers from death riches do not profit in the day of wrath but but righteousness delivers from death listen this is the test of job isn't it this is the test of job think about it he had great wealth oh by the way if you're tempted to say well if you have a lot of stuff you must somehow be sinful or out of god's will because you're rich well no solomon had more wealth than anybody in his day. 
Job has more wealth than anybody in his day. And those were two men that served and loved the living God. So there's proof that being wealthy and being godly are not mutually exclusive. They are not automatically opposed. Here was the wealthiest man of his age and he loved God. But Satan said to the Lord, listen, if you just allow me to take away those things, if you just allow me to tempt him, if you take away all the things that you've given him, he's going to curse you to your face. What happened when Job lost everything? When his children were buried, the farm had fallen in. What happened to Job? Did Job curse God and die like his wife instructed him to? No. Job praised God. Why? Because Job's hope was in the God who had given the wealth, not in the wealth that God had given. Job's hope was not in the wealth that God had given. It was, or not in the uh, wealth that God had given, but in the God who had given the wealth in the first place. And so he was satisfied whether he was abundantly provided for or whether he had nothing. He still loved and served the God who had saved his soul and secured his eternal destiny. Listen, it is exceedingly difficult for us who have so much to see the difference between these two things because when we we have much our focus is often on the much that we have not on the god that has given us the much see paul says oh christian if god has given you much be sure your hope is in the giver of all good things not in the gifts that god has given if you aren't right with god then you're not set for the future you're not set for tomorrow what will happen when everything is wiped away and you can't control the situations and circumstances of your life you may be the richest person in the world but the moment you die you're going to stand before your creator and give account for the life that you have lived for after all hebrews chapter 9 verse 20 27 says it is appointed to every man once to die and then the judgment. What are you going to say when you stand before your maker? Before your creator? Well, I loved your stuff. I love your creation. I love the money. He's going to say, but you have rejected the God who gave all of the things that you love so dearly. The only way to be right with God is to turn from our sin and ourself and trust in God's pure and perfect substitute whom God has provided for our sins, the Lord Jesus Christ himself. We are to trust God's Savior and not our stuff. Money is indeed an important barometer, an important index and indicator that shows our commitment to Christ and his kingdom. If we are filled with arrogance and self-security because of our money and because of our gain, we need to revisit the the gospel and ask what rules our heart for it is a true statement that Albert Schweitzer gave when he said if you have something you can't live without you don't own it it owns you let me say that again if you have something that you can't live without you don't own it it owns you what is it that owns your heart this morning the stuff of this world or the savior what is it that is most important to you are you, are you showing your gratitude to God for the gracious gifts that He has given? Or, and are you guarding yourself against the dangers of money, the dangers of pride and self, self-security? If you're not, 
You need to consider again where your hope is. But secondly, this morning, not only do we see here the dangers of money, but we see also the duties of money as well. The duties of money for the Christian. See, Paul warns the negative aspects of money about the negative aspects of money for the Christian in verse 17. But now he turns to the positive aspect of money. He turns to the good side and the realm of God's kingdom. Timothy is to instruct, to charge, to command those who are in the church at Ephesus to use the resources that God has given them to do the works, uh, to do good works and to be gracious to others. Listen, Timothy, you need to tell the church to use these resources. Sources, leverage them, use them for God's good and the glory, his gracious glory to be shown throughout the earth. Second Corinthians chapter nine, verses six through 11, Paul addresses the Corinthian church and he makes sure they understand that they know their responsibility to give. It says in verse six, now this I say, he who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly and he who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must do just as he is purposed in his heart, not grudgingly or under compulsion for God loves a cheerful giver and God is able to make all grace abound to you so that always that always having all sufficiency in everything you may have an abundance for every good deed what did that say so sowing and reaping are directly related the way you give is the way that you're going to receive And that's not a motivation. Well, I'm going to give it all away so that I can have more and build up more and pile up more so that I can live a life in the lap of luxury. Listen, what he is saying is you are to sow just as you will reap just as you sow. And you are to be a cheerful giver. What kind of giver? Now, how how come when the plates passed on Sunday morning, most of your faces look like this? Because you're upset. Because you see it as your money. You're begrudgingly giving to God out of what you have. Instead of saying, I am graciously, gratefully giving back to God what He has so graciously given to me. And we are to be cheerful. We are to be happy about that expression of service. That expression of worship graciously, gratefully giving back to God what He has so graciously given to us. Indeed, Paul charges that Corinthian church to sow and to reap with a cheerful heart to reflect God's grace to them. He reinforces the theme of good works and graciousness that show the watching world the truth of the gospel in our hearts and in our lives. Listen, we are not to be hoarders of goods, but we are to be helpers with good deeds. Our good deeds are to show that we love and serve the living God. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, that shows us indeed that there's a direct correlation between those who have been given eternal life and the good deeds, the good works that we are supposed to practice when it says, for by grace you have been saved through faith and that not of yourselves. It is the what? What is it? The gift of God. It is not uh, by grace you have been saved through faith and not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. Now, is it because you work that you are saved? Why, Why are you saved? 
Because God gives salvation to you. But listen, there is a direct connection. Those who are saved are not saved because of their works, but those who are saved are saved to work. Look at verse 10. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. What are your good works? See, it's abundantly clear in this passage that you are not saved by good works. You are saved for good works. If a person claims to be saved by faith, but his life is not growing in holiness and good deeds, his claim is to be suspect. Rich Christians should be rich in good deeds as an evidence of their rich gratitude to God for his gift of eternal life. It should include being generous givers with generous with finances, but also rich Christians are exempt, are not exempt from giving their time and their talents to help others to work for Christ as well, not only by our works, words, but also by our works, we are to show that we are kids of God's eternal kingdom. We are to display for the watching world that we serve a good and gracious God who has given us eternal life. And because he's given us eternal life, we reflect his goodness and his graciousness by serving others. Serve God with more than just your mouth and your money. Serve God with your muscles. Oh, I don't have any. You have talents. You have time. Serve God in every area. We need to be people who are filled with good works. But secondly, not only good works, but we are also to be people who are filled with graciousness towards all. Christians, indeed, should not be stingy grunts, but rather generous givers. Not stingy grunts, but generous givers, because God is generous and kind, especially to those who are undeserving. We were alienated from God because of our sin, because of our selfishness, because of our rebellion. The fact that we have reviled and rejected God at every turn separated us from the living God. And yet in his love, in his grace, he reached out and saved sinners like you and I to make us saints for his good, his His kingdom and so that we could live and display how much his love has changed and transformed our lives he had every right to condemn us he had every right to banish us to hell and yet he sent his son jesus christ to pay the penalty for us for our sins and he has extended grace upon grace to you and I in our hour of need. Indeed, Romans chapter 8, verse 32 tells us of God's character when it says, He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how will he not also freely give us all things? Second Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9, God's character once again is revealed when Paul says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. God is the perfect example of a gracious giver. Aren't you thankful for that this morning? You and I deserved punishment. You and I deserve God's justice and judgment, his wrath upon our sins. And yet his love took Christ, who was rich, rich in every way, 
and made him poor, made him suffer as a substitute there on the cross of Calvary so that he might forgive your sins and my sins so that he might make us sons and daughters of the Most High. Listen, what an amazing God we serve. What a gracious God we serve. Indeed, because of his grace, we are to have that same gracious attitude in our giving. God blesses us with more. When God blesses us with more income, we ought to look and ask the question, how does he want to us to increase our giving? Not just to use it to improve our lifestyles. As I've said before, we need to go beyond a tithe in our current culture because a tithe though it is in the Old Testament and it is a standard that is given there that is a legalistic standard that we would look at and we would be satisfied with much less than the standard that God has given in the New Testament indeed I believe for you and for me within our current country and culture and the society in which we live that if we are limiting ourselves to merely a 10% of what God has so graciously given to us we are robbing the living God. And I don't hear a single amen. You know why? Because we ask the wrong question. We ask, what do I have to give instead of how much has God given to me? If we changed our stinking thinking, we'd get it right. We'd be stewards of God's stuff, not owners of our things. Remember, God owns it all. We are just his money managers, his servants, his stewards, and our giving reflects his graciousness. And so we are to send our resources ahead. We are not to store up our treasure for ourselves here upon earth where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal. But rather, we are to store up our treasures in heaven where moth and rust do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your heart is, there your treasure will be also. Is that true for you? Where's your treasure? See, I believe that one of the main reasons that we aren't generous givers is because we don't trust God. We don't live by faith. We think that we have to plan for every contingency that might come up within this life and so we're afraid to give because we're afraid to trust the living God the creator of the universe the sustainer of all things to meet our needs in the future we would rather live by sight instead of living by faith and what does the Bible tell us about that we are to live by faith and not by sight see it's a great adventure to live by faith and to trust God as we live Uh, uh, live by giving graciously to further advance the gospel within this world. Another reason we don't give generously is quite frankly because we are sloppy, impulsive managers of God's money. We get caught up with American consumerism, mistakenly thinking that we need more junk and we need all of that stuff right now. So we spend money we don't have on junk we don't need to impress people we don't even care about. We've got the cart before the horse, people. We spend money we don't have on things we don't need to impress people we don't even care about. We go back at home and talk about them and all of their opulence, don't we? Listen, let me put it bluntly to you this morning. 
If you're not graciously giving glory to God in the way that you give to His service through, through the uh, ministries that you are involved in, you don't have money to spend on entertainment or meals out. If you can't give to God first, then listen, you don't have money to go out and eat. You don't have money to go entertain yourself. Isn't it amazing how big $20 looks when you're putting it in the offering plate and how small it looks when you're at the golf course or the mall? Isn't it amazing? Take some time and think about it. Where are your resources? Where is your treasure? Are you saving it up for yourself and you're going to waste it away and you're going to be gone and not never know how anybody used it? Or are you going to send it on ahead by giving to the church, by giving to the ministries, by giving to see the gospel go forward to the ends of the earth? What is your pressing concern? Because it's an issue of lordship. God has saved your soul and secured you for all of eternity to Him. Surely you can trust Him with the money that will provide for your needs, can't you? Maybe you're wondering, well, Pastor, how much are we supposed to give? I don't know. But the New Testament principle that I find is quite frankly a lot higher than any of us have. The New Testament principle that I find is that we are to give as God has given to you according to 1 Corinthians 16:2 and 2 Corinthians chapter 8 verse 9 or v- chapter 9 verses 8 through 11. We are to give as God has given to you. How much has God given to you? Let's answer that. How much has God given to you? All. Everything. How much can you give to God? Everything. Exactly right. All things are to be used for His good and for His glory. C.S. Lewis said this, I do not believe I can settle how much you ought to give. Say, praise God. I'm thankful for that statement. Yeah, but listen to this one. I don't believe I can settle how much you are to give. I am afraid the only safe rule is to give more than we can spare. In other words, if our expenditures on comfort, luxuries, amusements are up to the same standards common among others with the same income as our own, we are probably giving away too little. We're doing the same stuff as everybody else around us in our same bracket and class of income. We're probably giving away too little. We're probably not being good stewards and managers of God's resources. Because we ought to give until it hurts. George Mueller knew and understood this. George Mueller lived a life by faith in God alone and trusted that God answered prayers. For Mueller funded an orphanage that grew to over 2,000 uh, children before his death. He never solicited, solicited any funds from anyone except through prayer to the living God. One secret of Mueller's success with God was that he lived very simply and generously, gave away vast sums of missions to missions. In 19, or 1874, for example, he he received for personal income 3,100 pounds. 3,100 pounds. He could have lived in the lap of luxury. He could have had, you know, all kinds of stuff. Whatever the Rolls Royce chariot of his day was, he could have had it. But you know what George Mueller lived on that year? 
3,100 pounds brought in. He lived on 250 pounds and gave every dime of the rest of it away. He lived on 8% and gave 92% away to put that in today's money. If the 250 pounds were equivalent to 25,000 pounds, George Mueller would have received $310,000, but gave away 285,000 of it and lived only on 25,000. Now that's faith. From 1870 on, George Mueller himself personally supported 20 missionaries in China in the China Inland Mission from 1831 to 1885, George Mueller gave away 86% of his income to the work of the Lord. And we look and say, I can't spare an extra dime. What would it cost you to give more? A coffee from five bucks? I mean, Starbucks? Giving up a meal, eating out per week? What would it cost you to give more to God? What would it cost you? Well, actually, it would cost you everything because God in His richness and grace has given you everything. God funnels it in the top and we are responsible for keeping the bottom open so that we never hoard it or squander it on our personal luxury, but rather we send it ahead. What's the overarching issue behind all of this? The overarching issue is the use of our wealth, the stewardship of our resources, is indeed a function of God's lordship within our life. How we see ourselves, whether we are hoarders or helpers, through God's gracious and generous gifts is how we are living for Him and for His glory. Listen, how we use God, how we use what God has given us is a very important spiritual issue. Our attitude towards money, our use of money is an index of our sense of mission within this life. And it's also an index of what we truly worship. Jesus is my Lord and Savior. Well, our attitude and our approach to money that is reflected within our checkbook actually gives a good barometer, a good index, a good indicator of whether that statement is true. Is Jesus Christ your Lord today? Does He own everything? Are you one who hoards stuff or do you see yourself as a helper that has been given many resources so that you might indeed use them, leverage them for the good and the good of the gospel and the glory of God in his eternal kingdom? Listen, our riches are the resources God has gifted us with to facilitate his the flow of his gospel our riches are the resources that god has gifted us with to facilitate the flow of the gospel resources that god wants you to give what are they well the first resource god wants is not your stuff he wants you he wants you to say you know what lord you gave me life You've given me health. You've given me mental capacity. You've given me everything. You've given Jesus Christ as a sovereign substitute on that cross at Calvary to bear my sins. Lord, I give you my life. I give you my all. He wants your time. He wants your time. 
He wants you to consistently give Him the time He has given you so that you might live for His glory and see the gospel go forward in your community, in your family, in your home. He wants your talents. He wants every, everything He has given you. Every capacity and ability that He has given you to think and to work and to do good things, He wants you to use all of those things for His glory. He wants your treasure. Yeah, that means the wallet. It's not my wallet. It's His wallet. And on the altar that He has given me, Of the resources he has entrusted to me. I've got to be willing. To give up everything. For God's glory. As I live. To see his grace flow through me. To all those around us. Father as we come today. Let us hold nothing back. Let us not hold ourselves back. Let us not hold our time back. Let us not hold our talent back. Let us not hold our treasure back. Let us lay it all on the altar so that we might live a life of consequence for you. Lord, we ask today that as we deal with this time of invitation, Father, that your Holy Spirit would come and convict our hearts of sin, righteousness, and judgment, that he would convict us where we are holding back our time, our talents, our treasure, ourselves. And Father, He would move us to repentance. Father, to submit ourselves again to You. To submit every area and aspect of life. To be lived in consequence for You and for Your kingdom. Lord, let us wager everything we have this morning. All of our resources. Our life. Our health. Our mental ability. Even our money. Let us leverage it all. Father to facilitate the flow of the gospel. To the ends of the earth. In Jesus name. Amen. This morning if you have a decision that you want to make.